Misappropriation. Noun. The act of appropriating wrongly, as by theft or embezzlement. From the Latin prefix mis, meaning bad or wrong, and the Latin word appropriare, meaning to make one's own. Appropriation, the podcast for people who, like me, love heists. I'm your host, Libby, and I'm excited to share a super wild, absolutely legendary heist with you all this week. This week, we're talking about D.B. Cooper. Let's set the scene. It's November 24th, 1971, at the airport in Portland, Oregon. This is before airport security was a big thing, before constant camera surveillance, the TSA, or really any way of verifying someone's identity. A man walked up to the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines and purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle in cash. His only luggage was a briefcase and a brown paper bag. He listed his name as Dan Cooper and boarded flight 305 taking seat 18E in the last row of the plane. The flight between Portland and Seattle was about half an hour long. The man ordered a bourbon and 7-Up, which doesn't sound like it would be good to me, but it isn't my drink, so whatever. The flight departed on time at 2.58 p.m. A few minutes after takeoff, the man handed a note to the flight attendant sitting in the jump seat behind him. She assumed it was his phone number, and tucked the note into her bag without reading it. He leaned towards her and whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. The flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, opened the note. There, spelled out in neat capital letters, were the words, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase and I want you to sit by me. Schaffner handed the note back to the man, sat down beside him, and asked to see the bomb. The man opened the briefcase to reveal two rows of four red cylinders wired to a battery. He closed the briefcase. Schaffner wrote down a list of his demands and took it up to the cockpit to show the flight crew. The pilot, Captain William A. Scott, insisted that Florence Schaffner stay in the cockpit and not return to the passenger area of the plane. Mr. Cooper's note demanded $200,000 in cash, four parachutes, and a new flight plan upon arrival in Seattle. Captain Scott contacted Northwest's Flight Operations Headquarters in Minnesota and relayed the demands, saying that the hijacker, quote, requests $200,000 in a knapsack by 5 p.m. He wants two front parachutes, two back parachutes. He wants the money in negotiable American currency, end quote. The captain also had another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, sit next to Mr. Cooper to be the liaison between him and the flight crew. The president of the airline, Donald Nearup, instructed the crew to follow Mr. Cooper's directions and said that he would arrange for the ransom money to be raised and delivered to the airport. Mr. Cooper wanted a specific order to his demands. Upon landing, the plane was to be met by fuel trucks, 
and all passengers would stay on board. Then Tina Mucklow would bring the money onto the plane and the passengers would be released. The parachutes would be brought onto the plane last. The passengers were told that their arrival in Seattle was delayed because of a minor technical difficulty and the plane circled the Puget Sound in a holding pattern for about two hours while the police and FBI scrambled to get the money and parachutes arranged and mobilize emergency services. Cooper seemed to know the area pretty well, and he was able to point out landmarks from the air. He insisted that Tina Mucklow stay by his side the entire time. She made small talk with him and eventually asked why he picked that specific flight to hijack. He responded, quote, it's not because I have a grudge against your airlines, it's just because I have a grudge." End quote. At 5.46 p.m., the plane landed at Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Captain Scott asked Mr. Cooper if it was okay to park the airplane on a runway away from the main terminal, and he agreed, but insisted that only one person approach the plane with the goods, and that only one door would be opened. The airplane door was reached by a mobile staircase. Following Cooper's directions, Mucklow exited the plane and retrieved the ransom money. She had to bring the money bag past all of the seated passengers to Cooper's seat in the last row. The passengers were then led off the plane out the same front door. During the unloading of the passengers, Tina Mucklow jokingly asked if Cooper would share the money. He handed her a pack of bills, which she handed back, saying the company policy was that flight attendants couldn't accept gratuities. Once all of the passengers had disembarked from the plane, Mucklow went back outside three more times to retrieve the parachutes. Schaffner asked if she could retrieve her purse from a compartment behind Cooper's seat, and he allowed it, allegedly telling her, quote, I won't bite you. A third flight attendant, Alice Hancock, asked if the flight attendants could leave. When Cooper said, quote, whatever you girls would like, she and Schaffner left the plane. The refueling of the plane took longer than anticipated, and Cooper became impatient. He refused a face-to-face -face meeting with an FAA official and gave the flight crew specific instructions. He told them to head southeast towards Mexico City at a maximum of 10,000 feet elevation as slowly as mechanically possible for the plane. He also wanted the landing gear to remain down, the wing flaps to be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin to be unpressurized. He also asked that the plane take off with rear staircase deployed. The flight crew told Cooper that it wasn't safe to take off with the stairs deployed, and that flying the plane as he suggested would limit their range to around a thousand miles. Cooper didn't argue, and agreed to lower the staircase while in flight, and that the plane should stop and refuel at Reno Tahoe International Airport in Nevada. The flight took off again at around 7.40 p.m. On board were Cooper, Mucklow, Captain Scott, his first officer, and a flight engineer. The plane was tailed by two F-106 fighters from the McCord Air Force Base and a third plane from the National Guard. All three jets stayed out of view of the passenger plane. Cooper told Mucklow to lower the rear stairs, but she said she was afraid of being sucked out of the plane and asked for a safety line. Cooper said no, and that he'd lower the stairs himself. He directed Mucklow to close the curtain between first class and economy, and then to join the rest of the flight crew in the cockpit. She went to do as he directed, and but asked him to please, please take the bomb with you. He told her he'd either disable the bomb or take it with him. As she turned to leave, she looked back 
and saw him tying something around his waist. She was the last person to see him. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light in the cockpit indicated that the rear stairs had been deployed. The pilot used the plane's intercom to ask Cooper if he needed any assistance. He said no, and a few minutes later, the plane pitched as the rear cabin door opened. As the plane reached Reno around 11, the flight crew used the intercom system again to ask Cooper to raise the stairs for landing. There was no response, and the plane was able to land with the stairs deployed. Captain Scott searched the plane and confirmed that Cooper was no longer on board. The FBI bomb squad cleared the cabin after a half hour of searching. Cooper, the bomb, and the money had vanished. The FBI found 66 unidentified fingerprints on the aircraft, along with a black clip-on tie, a tie clip, and two of the four parachutes. One had been unpacked and had several lines removed, most likely used by Cooper to tie the money bag around his waist. He hadn't been thrilled that the money was delivered in a cloth bag instead of a knapsack with backpack straps like he'd asked. They also searched an estimated landing area for Cooper, but found no trace of him, the money, or the parachutes. Nine years later, in 1980, an eight-year-old boy was digging a fire pit on the banks of the Columbia River when he discovered three packets of $20 bills buried in the sand. The cash totaled around $5,800 and was heavily damaged, but still held together by rubber bands. The serial numbers of the bills determined that it had come from the ransom money paid to D.B. Cooper. The damage to the bills made hydrology experts think that they'd been deposited there by the river rather than intentionally buried. This is the only money from the D.B. Cooper ransom that has ever been recovered. The FBI called this the Norjack case, short for Northwest hijacking. It remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in the history of commercial aviation. The investigation was suspended 45 years later in July of 2016. Much of the evidence collected by the FBI is available to the public. The FBI's official position is that Cooper likely did not survive his jump. This theory is supported by several factors. Bad weather the night of the jump, the fact that Cooper took one working parachute and one dummy parachute, the rugged terrain in the presumed drop zone, and the fact that most of the ransom money has never been found, which suggests that it was never used or spent anywhere. The name D.B. Cooper is actually a bit of a misnomer. The hijacker called himself Dan Cooper, and the FBI and police wondered if he'd used his real name. So they interviewed an area man named D.B. Cooper. That Cooper was cleared pretty quickly, but a journalist rushing to make a deadline mixed up the names of the cleared suspect and the name used by the hijacker. The mistake was repeated by a wire service broadcast widely and has stuck ever since. So, what happened to him? It remains a mystery, but there are a lot of theories. The FBI searched for him in two different potential landing zones, and while they found some broken branches in the tree canopy, they failed to locate anything that could be definitively linked to Cooper. They even did an experimental recreation of the flight where they threw a 200-pound dummy off the back staircase of a Boeing 727, the same plane, 
And while they were able to replicate the movement of the plane, they still weren't able to get a good estimation of where Cooper might have landed. In the spring of 1972, two women discovered a skeleton in an abandoned building inside the potential landing zone. But it was determined to belong to Barbara Ann Derry, a teen girl who'd been abducted and murdered earlier that year. The physical evidence in this case includes the tie Cooper wore, his tie clip, and eight cigarette butts. The cigarette butts were lost, however, so they can't be tested for DNA like they probably would be today. The FBI has said they were able to obtain a partial DNA profile from the tie, but they can't conclusively say that it's Cooper's DNA. They've also failed to find any profile matches. The lead investigator on the case, Agent Ralph Himmelsbach, originally thought that Cooper probably did not survive his jump, but he changed his mind after several copycat skyjackings happened with the perpetrators surviving. He died in 2019, still unsure of Cooper's fate. There have been multiple people suspected of being D.B. Cooper, but none have been definitively proven to be involved. They range from an ex-Special Forces master skydiver to the first woman to undergo gender-confirming surgery in Washington State to fugitive family annihilator John List. Cooper has been hard to profile as a criminal. There's some controversy over his level of skydiving experience, with some suspects being considered over or underqualified to survive the jump. One of the FBI agents investigating the case, Larry Carr, said, quote, We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. We concluded after a few years this was simply not true. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with 172 miles per hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. End quote. The controversy partially stems from the four parachutes Cooper requested. He was delivered two main parachutes and two reserve parachutes, but one of the reserves was actually a dummy training chute and could not have been opened and used. One of the main parachutes was an older military model and the other was a newer sport model. The older main parachute and the dummy reserve chute were missing when the plane eventually landed and several lines had been cut from the other reserve chute left on the plane. Some argue that the choice of main parachute is evidence that Cooper must have had military parachute training. Others argue that taking the dummy reserve parachute shows a lack of skydiving experience. Cooper also didn't ask for goggles or a helmet or any of the other accessories an experienced skydiver might consider necessary. The FBI profile generated for him suggests a military background due to his familiarity with the location of McCord Air Force Base and his choice of parachute. The profile also said that he was intelligent, likely not a heavy drinker, and might have spoken French. They suspected he took the name Dan Cooper from a French-language comic about a character, Dan Cooper, a test pilot who had wild adventures. The hijacker was meticulous in his planning, including knowing that using a bomb as a weapon would prevent the FBI from rushing him, and gathering up every piece of paper he'd written on or used, including an empty matchbook. 
he also must have had aviation knowledge to be able to give specific instructions for flying the plane and setting the wing flaps, and to choose a plane with a rear staircase that could be lowered during flight. Whoever he was, he changed the course of aviation history. After the D.B. Cooper hijacking, there were several copycat hijackings, but those suspects were all eventually captured, and none of them could be proved to be Cooper. In 1973, the Federal Aviation Administration instituted universal luggage searches as a part of airport security to try and prevent hijackers from bringing weapons onto airplanes. The FAA also required that all Boeing 727s be outfitted with a Cooper vane, which is a spring-loaded mechanism that prevents the rear staircase from being opened during flight. When the plane is on the ground, the vane stands away from the door and it can open easily, but in flight, the wind pushes the vane against the door and prevents it from opening. There were also numerous changes to the size and structure of the Sky Marshal program. Today, they're called Federal Air Marshals, and they're under the supervision of the Transportation Security Administration and the Department of Homeland Security. If Cooper managed to survive his jump and lay low for the last 50 years, that's pretty impressive. I personally doubt he survived for the same reasons the FBI do, the weather, the equipment, and the money never turning up. The statute of limitations has passed on the hijacking, but in 1976, before the statute was up, a federal grand jury issued an indictment in absentia for John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, for air piracy and violation of the Hobbs Act. The fact that prosecution was initiated before the statute of limitations expired means that if Cooper is ever identified and alive, he could still be prosecuted for the hijacking today. So, Dan Cooper, if you're listening, lawyer up. So that's the story of D.B. Cooper. I think it's wild that despite all of the scientific advances in forensics over the last 50 years, he's still never been identified. I wonder if the FBI has enough genetic material to try and identify him through genetic genealogy, but I'm guessing that they wouldn't want to spend the resources on it because the crime is over 50 years old and technically Cooper didn't hurt anyone. Thanks for listening to Misappropriation. This episode was a fun one to research. I'll be back next week with another cool heist story.